Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy, while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it's time to talk tech. The Center for Democracy and Technology is almost as old as the internet itself. Almost. And without question, and yes, I am certainly biased, it has been one of the most influential groups in the tech policy arena. The internet and digital world we know today would be very, very different without CDT's advocacy efforts. Jerry Berman founded CDT back in 1994 and remains engaged with the organization to this day. He is certainly one of the pioneers of tech and internet policy, and today we're lucky enough to have him on Tech Talk as he looks back on his most memorable policy battles, shares his thoughts on what the future of the internet will look like, and perhaps even gives us some insights on how to disconnect from CD or from DC. Welcome, Jerry, to Tech Talk. Good to be here, Brian. So we're going to look back a little bit first, but we were actually chatting last night and you had some I would say almost pessimistic thoughts about you know where we are right now with the internet. Tell me what you're thinking about in terms of the future of the internet and where we're going. Well, before I can talk about the future, let's let's stay on the agenda and talk about the past. Okay. Um, for people who take it for granted that the internet's there and they're on it um, and where it's become an integral part of their lives, um, I I came on the scene when the internet was wasn't even there. Uh, we were, it was really 1986 where I began to see uh, a fundamental shift in our, in our technology when I worked on the Electronic Communications Privacy Act at the ACLU. And what we were doing is trying to ensure the privacy of new forms of communication, which included email and video transfer and not just speech. Um, and telephone calls, and the 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 Congress, when they enacted wiretap legislation, put aside any discussion of text. Um, they only dealt with phones and left for another day. So there was a little gap uh, in the statute, which became oh, a two-year effort to try and fill that gap and cover new technologies. And so that was consciousness raising. Um, when the, the internet came along and uh, in around 1992, a very big change happened. Um, I was at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They hired me as their first Washington officer and then executive director because they wanted to have an impact on civil liberties in the new digital media and they were convinced that Washington just didn't understand it. And they came to me at the ACLU and I said, I've been working on these technologies and let me tell you, Washington, you, you kind of disdain Washington. They don't understand how cell phones work and how the internet works. But if you wanna make a difference, you better come to Washington because Washington may not understand your technology, but they certainly will not forbear from legislating all about it and if they think it's a TV set they'll treat it like a TV set so uh, it's best to get out of your garage and come here I think that message got through to some people 
uh, certainly to Mitch Capehor, the founder of, of EFF. And so we started a Washington effort, really, both to look at the, this changing technology and also to address the policy issues that that technology presented to try and maximize its openness. The, the key turning point was in 1992 when, when Rick Boucher's congressman from Virginia took on the effort to allow commercial traffic over what had been a defense Mm-hmm. research network. Um, uh, the internet was transferred into the private sector and for the first time commercial traffic was allowed on the internet. It, researchers were unhappy about that but that was a revolutionary step, that change. And so there by allowing um, anyone to get on the internet including corporations and the, the product at that time Companies you don't even remember: Prodigy, CompuServe, early. I remember the efforts names. to or- I don't think I ever interacted. Well, with them, you know, <laughs> AOL, and AOL. They, yes. These are uh, they were the first adapters to try and build communities on the internet to allow people to communicate, send email, talk to each other, and so on. Uh, there was the well. I mean, there was the 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 the, the net nerds had it, always had a network. Uh, from the beginning, mm-hmm. because what the, when they discovered the biggest thing about the internet, when it was just a research network trying to connect supercomputers together, was that email was the greatest application. Everyone wanted to send email, and everyone wanted to have an email account. So communication was there from the beginning. Now, some of the 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 DARPA people. Uh, defense of applied research net- network people who who invented the internet um, thought you know it would transform our democracy but that was a small voice there the the commercialization of the internet uh, I'm is really a, a fundamental step and what I saw and others saw um, as I listened to the technologists was here was a technology which applied across the telephone networks would allow everyone to speak. Everyone could connect and communicate. Mm-hmm. This was very different than mainstream media. We were dominated by three networks. We didn't even have the Absolutely. cable networks. So here was a, for me, I saw the democratic potential of this new technology because there was always a lot of uh, criticism of mass media and the, and the difficulty of routing around mass media so that other people could speak to each other. They felt that, that it was dominated by a set of gatekeepers. So here was a potential non-gatekeeper network. And unlike cable and television or radio, it was not bounded by scarce spectrum. It was on. It, you could build out as as much as you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still in that transformation because the internet in many places is still a very fast set of cars. Call your computer that or your phone running on dirt roads. Uh, call that the infrastructure. That infrastructure is you build super highways, but not not the super highway that 
we used to talk about 500 channels in two directions, kind of huge cable network with nothing else on. Here was a multi-directional network that anyone could get on. And if the technology improved, it could become faster. You could get on it. It was an application platform. And for me, a student of political science and political philosophy at Berkeley, um, here was uh, something that mirrored um, America in the 1830s, which was when Alexis de Tocqueville, a famous philosopher, came to understand what, what is this democracy about. He said it was certainly about equality. And what he saw equality as breaking down all the relationships that, that an aristocratic society had and flattening out. What he was concerned about was that it would it would create a, an equal space where everyone was equal, but allow for the potential of real tyrants to take over, benevolent mm -hmm. dictators, because the people, you, you, you had to worry about what he called the tyranny of the majority. And are it, you seeing a bit of that today then? Is that I, when you're- I'm, I gotta get there. All right, I'll let you keep going. So if you if you had this this platform, what, what Tocqueville saw in terms of of what was exciting about about democracy in our early stages was the poli the, the proliferation of newspapers. People there were th hundreds, thousands of newspapers and pamphlets, and people were using the printing press uh, in an early way to to reach everybody else. And there were many voices. So, the, a communications medium that allowed many voices to speak was possible again when the internet came along. Everything had been concentrated. Newspapers were in small hand, group of hands. Media was concentrated because of scarce spectrum. The internet was a revolutionary potential to break out of that and allow everyone to have that platform. And uh, it would also, in my mind, facilitate what is crucial to the exercise of liberty and citizen empowerment, which is the ability of and the willingness of citizens to get together when there's a problem to solve and find a solution. The ability to come together and solve problems, reach your community, form new communities, was also part of the internet potential. So that's everyone speaking, uh, everyone equal, lots of Good potential vision. liberty. Yeah. That's the vision. And the internet, when it was commercialized, offered that potential. And what we said at CDT, um, which I founded in 1994, over the dispute about how much time do you spend working on policy in Washington, how much time do you just spend saying, God, they don't get it right. <laughs> it was very difficult for, the, for some of the people at EFF uh, in the early days, not talking about EFF today, but to say, we're going to work on policy because it requires you to compromise. It requires you to talk yeah. to the FBI and to the Congress, and policy they don't get it. Policy is not a pretty game It's to not play. a pretty game. <laughs> it, someone said, you know, Jerry likes making sausage making, and that's what it's all about, but we just don't like it. It's ugly. And I said, if, then I'm going to have to form my own organization. I took some of the staff from EFF left with me, and we founded an organization that was going to get right in the middle of a battle because the third part of it is that 
okay, we have a flat platform, it's a new medium, we have to break out of the policy vision that the internet was going to be like a television set that you could control what was on at one end and regulate it in that way. So mm-hmm. we had to persuade uh, policymakers that that's not the way the internet was designed. And if they tried to regulate it that way, they would stifle its potential. So that required involvement and CDT was involved. And it also required something else, which is if there is no center to this thing, then you had to bring communities together and make policy within the community. So we, from the beginning, we took some corporate money, we took foundation money, uh, we never took from anyone interest, and it's been our principle for all along to involve as a diversity of funders that represented the, the, the community itself to get together and try and solve problems. And we solved a number of problems. Let me yeah, continue down this plan. The, where CDT has made a difference, I think, on a profound difference, is trying to frame the policy architecture of the Internet, beginning with getting commercial traffic to run across the Internet. That was number one. Number two is if we're all going to communicate, we needed privacy. So the early effort, even though it was just pre-Internet, to create privacy protections for email so that it had the same protection as first-class mail was a revolutionary step because of the open nature of email at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go too deep, but email didn't go from one, one end to the other immediately. It went through a medium step and would stop at MCI or, and then be forwarded to you, and it looked like a telegram. Telegrams don't have much protection under law. But if you could cre- create the idea that email was as protected as, as first-class mail, that was good for privacy. And I would argue it was also good for industry because do you want a product that wasn't worth anything to anybody? If you wanted to have a really good product, it is in your self-interest to get behind our effort to reform those laws. And so I could build a coalition that included everyone from the ACLU to IBM. And when we ran into problems about why, God, you're going to, this is going to be bad for law enforcement. Um, And at that time, Ronald Reagan was the president. Ed Meese was the attorney general. We had to figure out how do you talk to Ed Meese? Well, the ACLU is not going to call Ed Meese, a very conservative attorney general, and say, hi, Ed, we'd really like to have this law passed. But when IBM called and said to the Attorney General, this is really important to us, that was the kind of self-interest rightly understood coalition building that had to come together to form a part of the architecture. So we, we passed legislation in the privacy space. The same thing happened. The, the most immediate challenge to the Internet fundamental challenge was the whole battle over pornography on the internet. CDT played a leading role in what became this landmark case called ACLU v. Reno. The ACLU, they filed a case to challenge legislation that would have regulated speech on the internet and required the, the, the 
intermediaries at that time, whether it was AOL or Prodigy, to monitor what was coming across the network and make sure that there was no pornography. That would have really required them to, to monitor every piece of, of what was a huge stream and a growing stream of communications and would have crippled it. Um, also, we had to convince people it was going to be very effective because you stop one stream, there's another stream right. coming. It's coming from overseas. It's coming, we can't, you can't regulate that stream that way. And the most effective way to deal with some problems on the Internet is to empower users to do it themselves. Give them the tools to, to block pornography at, at their home. Make their own choices. And so that became a, a public policy battle in Congress. And some of the civil liberties community waited and said, we're just going to sue because this is really unconstitutional. CDT took the position that we're going to fight to try and win in Congress because it's really important how that legislation is passed. And one of the second most important successes was not that, that lawsuit, but when the Senate passed a very um, uh, regulatory bill that would have stifled speech, the House of Representatives took a very different position. It said, we're, we're going to try and build a statute here that empowered the intermediaries to monitor themselves but not be responsible for everything that's coming across their network, be good Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And that became called Section 230, which was written into the statute on the House side. When the, when, as sausage making goes, mm -hmm. when Congress reconciled those two bills, which are unreconcilable, the Newt Gingrich uh, deregulatory bill and the James Exxon big regulatory Senate bill when they came together, the, the conference decided to put them together. They wow. don't fit, <laughs> but they did. We'll pass your bill, we'll pass this bill, we'll put them all together. Then it became a, a legal challenge. The ACLU brought together a set of, of plaintiffs um, who were the, the, the gay community, the healthcare st s clinic, someone distributing AIDS information, they could be swept up and regulated in the effort to get at pornography. And they said, this law is too vague. It's unconstitutional. We made a very different art. We filed a second lawsuit with the uh, American Library Association, AOL, and CDT. We formed a coalition of citizens, Citizens Internet Empowerment Association. Of We had thousands of, of netizens join in the lawsuit. And we went to court with a very different argument. Yes, it was unconstitutional, but when Congress regulates speech, it has to look for the least restrictive means of doing something. And we made the argument that empowering users to filter their own content was the least restrictive, most effective way to deal with this problem. That, for some, uh, in the civil liberties community, they did not like that argument. They did not want filters and censorship filters out there. They thought that would threaten the internet. Mm. But we made that argument in court. And when, it, when we did two things which are always important to remember as you think about the internet, you get involved if you're a netizen. If you're in the policy space, 
you go in and educate whatever whatever policy making body you're dealing with when this law passed it went to it was there was an immediate challenge under the statute and we went to Philadelphia which was the, the court yeah. case and we wired the court I remember we put, that picture we, we put, have it hanging in the new offices we here. put computers <laughs> on every desk of every of every judge and they learn how the internet worked it's incredible it's part of our dna yeah is teaching people how the how the the technology works as part of any policy solution i don't care where you are on a on the problem if you don't understand the technology you're not going to find the right solution yeah and now we're going to take a quick musical break then return with our founder jerry berman Poet said, Come, let us be true. But I don't trust these words from you. You've broken my heart so many times. I think you're taking me to a desolate isle. On a river of doubt and sorrow that flows from here to some tomorrow and silent prophets never show me a sign only trees of smoke on the shoreline the poet sang Times are changing Times are changing God's on our side Only words now Since our feet turned to clay That little ditty was from Jerry's West Virginia band, quite the talented founder. And now we continue our conversation with him. Everyone should listen to this podcast because it's such a great history lesson. Well, of, you I know, got... you talk about these laws and policies that we, I wouldn't say we take them for granted now, but they really are the foundation of the internet we have today. And still, a lot of the policies we're advocating for, the approaches that we're taking, are based on what you did. Well, it, then, but it, now, now you're it not going to find Jerry Berman's lawsuit or CDT's <laughs> lawsuit because right. in order to organize the community on behalf of our lawsuit, we merged into a we created a citizens internet empowerment coalition that allowed many organizations to come together and no one be king of the mountain. Yeah. And so we brought a whole bunch of organizations together. We also got the industry, even though they were kind of protected or mishmashed into the legislation that had passed, to say, 
This is really going to cripple you, ultimately. You've got to stand up here. It's pornography, we know, but if you, we are going to frame this lawsuit as educating the courts and policymakers and the press that this is a different technology. And so if you look at the way we frame the, 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 the ALA CDT lawsuit, which was joined with the ACLU lawsuit, our plaintiffs were the industry. Every internet provider was there. Um, telephone companies yeah. were not there. We did not allow or did not reach out to any media that would confuse the courts about whether this was a continuation of what went before. Oh, so it was the new industry. Yeah. So that was the presentation. And we, we had also had to persuade everybody that our lawyer, Bruce Ennis, now passed away, was the best lawyer. He was f to argue this case before the Supreme Court, and he argued the case. And we won nine to zero wow. that said, you can't regulate speech this way. The internet is this new, wonderful, vibrant technology. It's a, you know, it's a, a, a conversation across the globe. Yeah. A lot, of the, the, the view of the internet, I think, may be drafted by the clerks of some of those judges and the judges themselves, but they understood that this was something big and they wanted to protect it. So it was 9-0 with, with some caveats on, and, uh, on the corners of the judges, but that was a major decision. And so policy architecture, privacy, commercial, anybody on, free speech for everyone were and also because we struck down the major statute the court did it left standing section 230 as constitutional and that statute became so the and that's the reason we have so the much communications decency now, yeah. act became the communications democracy act by in the end leaving that section alive which said intermediaries they carry everything but they are not responsible for the libel the slander those they can try and regulate it but if they regulate it they can't be held as oh you're regulating then you must be responsible for all of it we're not you're not and that that forbearance has allowed all everything from facebook to twitter um okay. to the future to to be part of that platform so that architecture, a couple of changes, no, no victory in that suit, no privacy legislation, no commercialization, and you can take the most wonderful technology in the world and it would have been stranded. So it was a really exciting thing. And as, you, as I think the history of CDT has learned, it is always under challenge because we yes. uh, we can go through the battle over Kalia and telephones and encryption and whether you're going to have an encryption key in your phone that the government can unlock. We went through battles like that, all on the principle of of keeping the platform open. Some people say uh, Jerry Berman and CDT they they worked with the FBI to to enact the the Law Enforcement uh, Act, which which required companies to design their networks uh, to allow for wiretapping. 
If you're opposed to all wiretapping, this was a terrible thing to do. It was authorizing wiretapping. But, but in the scheme of politics, you have five votes in Congress for no wiretapping. <laughs> you had to find a solution that was in the middle and protected privacy, but also gave law enforcement some access to the, to, uh, the telephone network or to cell phones. But one of the most amazing things that people have discovered recently is that in that regulatory scheme over law enforcement technology designs, it didn't apply to the internet. Somebody was in the room and said, don't do the internet. Somebody? I think I think it was people like CDT were Maybe in that room. Like CDT, we were in that room. <laughs> and I remember Senator Lee saying, okay, FBI, we're going with you on the telephone network, but we ain't touching the internet. That's awesome. And that's how the deal was done. Can so, I get you to pivot a little bit so we sure. don't run out of time? Let's look towards the future a bit. So, you know, you helped set this framework that's created what we have today for better and for worse, right? I would say mostly yeah. for better. What do you, how do you feel about the future? I asked you early on. Now, can well, you answer I, it? Here's the, here's the deal. Um, if I was talking to my son this morning, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do an interview about the, the Internet. And I said, why is it important to you? Well, it's the access to information. It's there, uh, like in no other medium. So, and that continues to, to grow. I mean, and as I get older, it's great to have Google to, to click on <laughs> a movie and find out who that actor is because I've forgotten their name. Um, so it's, I've got the information at my fingertips. I've got more information at my fingertips. Second of all, um, my son can reach people that are interested in what he's interested in that he couldn't before. And communities, whether they're gay communities or, or women trying to empower themselves in businesses or they're working on some issue, it, it mirrors that, that vision of allowing people to get together to solve problems. So it, it is an empowering tool politically. That's the, that's the, the and Third and most important, I've been working on this issue too on, in the intellectual property area, teaching young people that ripping off music is really not a good idea because it's, it's not in your self-interest because you are part of the creative community. Don't think of the, you know, the big studios uh, taking all the money in the world so you will take their music. It's your music that you're putting up on YouTube. It's your music that your your poetry, your book, your ebook creation. There is a creative explosion which the internet allows, but if anyone can rip it off, you have no protection. So it is in your interest to protect um, the creative potential of the internet. So for for my son, his ability to put his photography up on Facebook. Yeah. Is something I said. NBC wasn't going to put up your 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 photography unless he's amazing. Uh, the, the, unless you're amazing, <laughs> you can fight your way into a museum, but you're not going to get on 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 the evening uh, cable network or at Fox or at MSNBC. But you can be up on the internet. So those those empowering things which people take for granted is what drives the the positive vision of the internet. Where I'm having trouble is that. As much as it allows our community to organize to fight for civil rights, 
and someone else to to reach a gay community and and say let's empower ourselves together and let's work on this or let's don't feel bad about yourself uh, feel strong we're here together it also allow it since it's a flat platform everyone else can also organize so you're passionate about gay rights or civil rights well someone else is passionate about getting rid of every muslim in this country and restoring white america and that that we ought to purify the race or um that that uh, uh we ought to kick all these people out of school or we ought to elect candidates who will take us back to 1950 they have the same legitimacy on the internet. They have the ability to organize. They have the right the ability to use it. And they're finding ways to use it. They, they mimic um, first adapters who use right. the internet to win the, the Communications Decency Act. They can organize to defeat the Communications Decency Act. They learn the tools and they learn how to crowdsource uh, hate. Yeah. And and so what we see in our politics is uh, uh, sometimes with, with, with horror that, that views that shouldn't be part of our dialogue are being mainstreamed, that what, the, what we used to worry about mainstream media being filters they were at least arbiters of something called fairness and, and they could maybe articulate the facts and had some trust because there's no gatekeepers anymore. There's no trusted sources. That means um, uh, Daniel pa Patrick Moynihan, a great senator um, from New York, once said, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not everyone's entitled to their own facts. Right. Well, we are breaking through that. Yeah. We are beginning to overturn that. People are saying, not only am I entitled to my own opinion, I can get the facts that fit that opinion, and then I can communicate it to someone else and feel empowered that those facts are true. In When I was a young person, someone who thought some of the things that are being said today would be write them cut out stuff in a in a magazine and paste it on a news in uh, in a news in a letter and mail it to the editor of the newspaper and it would put in a junk bin now that person puts up a website with very little effort and can make it look just like the Washington Post website communicate empowered and they're 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 having a big impact on the debate and we well, don't I'm know what to do about it I know this far too well. <laughs> and that that kind of your point is great about the different set of facts. You know, it used to be that you started with the same set of facts and could have different interpretations of those facts. But when you're having different sets of facts that we are, are often polar opposites, we are it actually does dealing some with different sets of facts. Well, the, the, the other challenge is that while the internet promotes uh, everyone having a voice, it it is shown a weakness in promoting anything like a public square and deliberative democracy. The idea, when I think about democracy, well, everyone will have their opinion, and then we'll have a debate over the same facts, 
and we will it might get contentious sometimes but then we can reach a compromise and that's how policies like make. that's what's in but your, that, your phones, yes. But that is not how the internet works. It works in terms of segmentation. Everyone is going into their own silo. Everyone's got their own opinions and their own facts and their own echo chamber, and, and that's how the internet's working. Now, that's an internet problem, but it's a bigger problem than that because the internet is so powerful, a cultural tool of, of empowerment so is that more and more our Congress looks like the internet. It's everyone in their own silos, even within parties they're into different silos, and they, they, they talk to the camera, they talk to their constituency, they talk to their base, and they don't talk to anyone else. So the, the, the view of, the, of everyone down in the Senate well debating whether we should go into Iraq, which happened in the first in the yeah. first Gulf War, doesn't happen anymore. So if Congress runs like the internet, and it promotes lots of speech, but no deliberation and no dialogue, and everyone's got different facts on each side of the aisle, there's no coming together. It took us two years to pass the Electronic Communications Privacy Act because Republicans and Democrats deliberated, came together, there were moderate Republicans, and they felt an obligation to listen and find solutions. Those moderate Republicans are gone, and they've been taken out by, by the way politics runs in our primaries. The internet plays a big role in that, um, and, it, and it happens on our side too, because we have lots of Democratic districts, but if you look at redistricting battles, it, it's a deal between two parties. You create some safe seats, I'll recreate some safe seats, we'll all have safe seats, and then we can yell at each other. And now, of course, just to clarify, Jerry said our side, CDT is uh, nonpartisan. So <laughs> I don't, I was, I was speaking more generally as a citizen, not, a, not, exactly. I'm sorry, not, I, not, I was not representing CDT. I know when you I said that's why our I'm just side, I'm using CDT. that. <laughs> I'm just saying our side, their side. Sometimes it's, it, totally you know, I can, that. I can go and say that, that, you can say whatever you want now. Well, whether, whether, <laughs> sometimes I think the, uh, uh, the conservative side has the right argument, yeah. but the liberal side isn't going to listen to it, and they're figuring out a way to defeat you, and they're figuring out a way to use the Internet. Last big point, when, when Madison and helped to write the Constitution and wrote the Federalist Papers in order to justify our, our democracy, they were talking about representative government. It was a republic, not a democracy. And today, there's this growing opinion that all of these, these the, the, the way that they design things is a rigged system. They rigged small states get as many votes in the Senate as big states. That sounds unfair. Um, why are nine people making decisions about the Constitution? Why aren't we making decisions about the Constitution? And uh, the old idea that Cong we'd have a big fight over an election, then Congress would go and work, and the people would go back to work and get out of the arena. That's not happening anymore. 
we have the people in the room with their representatives on a daily basis, and I believe, this is not CDT's opinion, but my belief is that we are heading for closer and closer to plebiscitic democracy, which is that there are no intermediaries anymore. There's just the citizens, no, get rid of political parties, get rid of closed primaries, just let one side or two sides or three sides reach their citizens, worry about, you know, let's, um, I think Senator Cruz proposed changing how the Supreme Court runs so that they're elected more often, so that they don't have lifetime appointments. There are proposals to change the Senate back in a way that it would allow local legislators. We could get in a lot of details, but the, but the, what the, the public is coming along with maybe not a civics lesson anymore, and bringing their own facts and bringing and empowering themselves, but our democracy is facing a challenge where um, the the idea of intermediary institutions or or any kind of filter in politics is is being questioned, and I do not think that um, we are well served if if we are voting online about whether or not to go to war in Syria or... Sure. Uh, well, clearly there's a lot of issues that remain on the table and make CDT all the more important than ever. Um, one last question for you. You actually moved away from D.C., still have residents here, but live primarily in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Any advice for those of us who've been in the game you know, a while and need a break? How do you detach from D.C.? Because as you just described, sausage-making well, is hard. <laughs> well... Um, I think I detached for for two reasons. Um, one is there are other things in life besides politics, um, and you you oughta you oughta experiment with those and do those things um, while you can. The idea of every day that you're going to live forever is really a bad proposition. Um, you shouldn't live with the proposition you're going to die today or tomorrow, <laughs> no. but you should really think about what you're doing. Uh, two, it's really important to allow a younger generation to come in with new ideas. They they may, I hope, have the same DNA at CDT and and to 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 frame decisions, but they keep up with the technology. They have different interests and different needs, and they and we ought to promote change. Um, and an institution that, that doesn't have a strong succession um, is an institution which is, which is doomed. And it's one of the problems of many institutions is uh, the founders pick a weak successor. And I did not do that. I picked people who are better than me to run the place. And, you know, Leslie Harris did a great job and Nuala O'Connor is doing a great job. And so that's, that's good for the institution. But for me... Um, I've gone far enough away in West Virginia that I cannot telecommute my politics. I, you cannot <laughs> lobby from a distance. Um, you, can, you can get angry at what's going on, and sometimes I want to be back in the arena, but a good part of me is enjoying um, different forms of expression. And also, by being in West Virginia, which has gone from a blue state to a red state, and which has a lot of angry people, um, what you learn at the local level in working in my county 
is that you're, you really do have to listen to people. And my biggest message to anyone in Washington is, believe it or not, get out of Washington. <laughs> you are not the center of the universe. And one of the problems that people have out in the world is they do not feel that Washington listens to them, that it runs on its own internal clock and, and networking and makes decisions for people and assumes what they're thinking. And that is really disrespectful to people, particularly when they, they have now have the same technology and they have the same ability to organize um, an organization and build coalitions that, that you might find and I might find really distressing, but they're there. And some of their anger is, is absolutely justified and you better find out what it's about and we're going to have to learn how to talk to each other and i don't know whether that begins just with the internet it begins offline and it begins in communities um and it begins and and that dialogue and i think that that cdt should be promoting a dialogue that has people coming together not just clicking on on their on their mouse which they don't do anymore <laughs> but but coming together and talking about, at least for the internet, what is a, a code of, of conduct that we ought to adopt as responsible, virtuous members of a medium to keep, to keep it alive? Because I think the greatest threat to this open medium is gonna come from the inability of the users to translate into a responsible, um, uh, way of communicating and finding a way to deliberate. So uh, promoting dialogue in communities, getting using this technology to get people to come together, debating almost as we did in the days that I was talking last night, Brian, in the days when we, we put together the Constitution, really having a dialogue across the country where people come together face to face and talk about what they think those five or six principles we ought to have that would make the internet work for people and so that we are listening to each other and how do we do that and so it's can we use the internet and flip this flat platform into building uh, intermediaries that that work in this rebuild yeah. um, well can I come out to uh, West Virginia and continue this conversation sometime sure. then. Sure. I will need to do that. Jerry, thank you so much. This has really been a joy of a conversation. Um, and thank, thank you for all you've done for tech and internet policy. It's well, a privilege to have I, a true pioneer on the show. Well, it's a privilege to, to be among you. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. When you have your founder on, there is no need for a second segment. Be sure to follow CDT on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or connect with us on LinkedIn. We share a ton of great insights on all of them. I'm Brian Wozolowski. Thanks so much for listening.